Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about the recent budget action that's been going down in D.C. Last week, President Trump signed into law a major bipartisan budget deal that set funding levels for the next two years. And this week, the Trump administration released their 2019 budget request, along with the outlines of a major infrastructure plan. To make sense of it all, I sat down with three experts from the Urban Institute. We'll talk about the broad strokes of the budget deal and the president's request, and then dive deeper into two important policy areas, infrastructure and social programs. First up is Donald Marin, Institute Fellow and former Acting Director of the Congressional Budget Office. Donald, thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks. Pleasure to be here. So for the for the recent bipartisan budget deal from last week, got us funding for the government through 2019. What's in the bill? So there is an enormous amount in the budget bill that was enacted uh, last week. Uh, the first and most prominent is it uh, keeps the government open through March 23rd. Uh, and then it finally provides guidance about how much money the government's going to have to spend both this year and next year. And the decision the Congress made and that the president endorsed was to increase the amount of funding dramatically above what would have been previously written into law. So enormous increase in spending on defense over the next two years and a substantial increase in, in spending on domestic programs. And this was a bipartisan bill uh, passed the, in, into law, signed by the president. What brought both sides together on this? Why were they both attracted to the terms of this deal? So, I mean, the first thing is this is one of the must-pass things each year that we have to fund the government. Uh, in principle, we're supposed to fund the government as of October 1st, which you will notice was several months ago. Uh, we've had a variety of continuing resolutions at last year's funding level as they negotiated this, and that ultimately the bipartisan deal, I mean, so there are many other features of this deal that we'll get to, uh, but in particular, many Republicans were attracted by the increase in defense spending, and many Democrats were attracted by the increase in domestic spending. And so what are some of the specific highlights in the domestic spending side? So the way this works is that primarily what this did was set high-level targets for what spending can be. And then it kept the government open uh, through late March so that appropriators, the people in Congress who decide spending, uh, will have time to figure out how they want to allocate that additional money specifically. Uh, but in addition, it did uh, have some money specifically targeted towards uh, increasing spending uh, at the National Institutes of Health, uh, some for the opioid crisis, um, and some initial money for, for expanding spending on infrastructure. And what else is in the deal? So in addition, uh, the deal resolved a lot of loose ends uh, that the government faced. Uh, so for example, it suspended the debt limit for another year. Uh, so we're not going to have a debt limit showdown or crisis this year. Uh, the first time that could possibly happen would be sometime early next year. Uh, it uh, reauthorized spending on the children's health insurance program uh, over the next decade. That's a, a popular bipartisan program. It's been around for years, uh, but its funding had actually lapsed for a period. Uh, and so it was definitely a must-do item to, to extend that. Uh, and then also it decided to extend a variety of tax cuts that actually expired at the end of 2016. Uh, and so when you add up all those things, plus a significant amount of emergency funding for, for places in the country that have suffered from hurricanes and fires, uh, the bill overall basically resolves a whole host of outstanding uh, fiscal policy issues. Great. So let's talk a little bit about the Trump budget proposal 
What are some of the high level takeaways that you had as you've looked through that? At a very high level, the vision laid out in the budget is for a much smaller federal government than we've had traditionally. So if you look at the level of revenues that would be brought in, it's well below what has been historical norms, uh, which is not a surprise given the, the large tax bill that was enacted at the end of last year, which was a significant tax cut. The proposal doesn't uh, attempt to get to budget balance uh, over 10 years, as many past Republican budgets have, uh, but it does include uh, dramatic reductions relative to trend uh, in spending. Uh, that is most pronounced uh, in uh, the domestic discretionary side of the budget. So again, the parts of the budget that are devoted to operating agencies of government, you know, housing, labor, EPA, uh, those kinds of activities. So as you, if you look over the next decade, you'd see that the amount of spending on, devoted on those programs is much, much less than any sort of historical norm. Uh, and the proposal also has uh, some significant reductions in social safety net programs, some reductions on uh, lending for students, uh, and some reductions uh, for Medicare. So the president released the budget, but this does not automatically become law. What, what in fact is this document? How should we interpret it? Yeah, so I think it's important to view the president's budget as a statement of a governing philosophy, uh, in part a wish list of things the administration might want to pursue. Uh, and in reality, probably some things in there they don't want to pursue, but they included to make the numbers look the way they want them to. You know, realistically, what happens on the budget is going to be determined a lot by what folks in Congress want. Uh, and uh, I suspect what they're going to want during the course of the year differs significantly from what we see in the budget that the president laid out. What else stood out to you in this budget proposal? So there are a couple items where the president proposes to increase spending. Uh, defense is by far the most notable. It would have dramatic increase uh, in spendings, obviously some of which we saw occur in the budget deal that was signed last year, as last week, uh, but that uh, more of would, would, would be in the future. And then there's also uh, the infrastructure plan that the president has talked about. And so combining these things, the, the tax cut from the end of last year, the budget deal from last week, and this budget proposal, what does this mean collectively for the deficit? And is this something we should be worried about? So we are definitely on track to have much larger deficits than we've really ever seen at a time where we weren't in a major war and the economy you know, wasn't doing terribly. Uh, so we're in a period where unemployment rate is around 4%. Uh, the economy seems to be growing strongly, uh, knock on wood. And it's a very unusual time by normal macroeconomic standards to run large increasing deficits. Uh, and so we're about to run an experiment to see what the effects of that. Uh, folks who traditionally worry about debt and deficits worry that uh, if you do that, you'll either uh, spark inflation or that you'll drive up interest rates. Uh, there are some voices out there who say that, you know, despite the unemployment rate being down at 4%, there's still potentially a lot of slack in the economy and that maybe it makes sense to run the economy hotter than uh, traditional economists have thought. Uh, and that's really something to watch over the next couple of years. So after this week of Budget Palooza, any forecast in other budget excitement in the coming weeks and months? One piece of excitement we were on track to have, which would be another debt limit showdown, uh, has been put off for at least another year by the recent budget deal. So I think that's good news. Uh, I think in, in the first day that we've had now of the president's budget release, uh, a lot of the attention has been on the infrastructure proposal, which has a lot of detail behind it. And so I would expect in coming weeks that that's something in particular we're going to be talking about. Donald, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks. 
As Donald pointed out, infrastructure is a key issue for this administration. So I sat down with senior fellow Tracy Gordon to learn more. Tracy, thank you so much for joining me here. And this has been a busy week for infrastructure. There's been the infrastructure plan that has dropped as well as the president's budget. Would love for you to walk us through so we have some clarity on what's in both of these. Do you wanna start with the infrastructure plan? Sure. Uh, so the president announced a long rumored infrastructure plan at a uh, $1.5 trillion um, price tag, but the actual federal expenditure would be closer to $200 billion. Um, and there were a number of governors in the room and a lot of talk about uh, state and local governments and devolving responsibility to them. Um, but the idea here is that the federal government will basically put up about $200 billion and that state and local governments and private actors will uh, supply the rest. And that's how we get to 1.5 trillion. Where do those dollars usually come from? That's a big gap. Yes. Um, so the idea is that uh, the federal government will create incentives for state and local governments to create new revenue sources like dedicated taxes or to float bonds. Um, so far, the administration has said that they're agnostic as to the source of the funds. So the state and local sector is not feeling like they're flush with cash, um, but the administration is saying, you know, we're going to match your contributions if you find a source of revenue. And that might be a good thing to do for communities where um, there's a project that has a defined revenue source like um, fares that people who use the new uh, system would pay or other kinds of user fees. Um, but it's just important to point out that that money has to come from somewhere. It's not free. And so that's part of the infrastructure plan. Also released this week was the president's budget, which had some decreases in funding for the uh, Department of Transportation, which would go down around 19%. Right. So like last year's budget, um, the president is proposing to cut discretionary spending on Department of Transportation programs. Um, and those cuts would be concentrated on um, Amtrak and Transit and the FAA. Um, and so similar to the, the infrastructure plan, the idea is that you are you know, going to find these savings. So the, the infrastructure plan does not include a revenue source. Um, and in the past, members of the administration have said that they would find savings through cuts to the discretionary budget for DOT. So, uh, so all the two, although the two documents are separate, they're related through this idea of discretionary spending cuts, which some people think would be quite devastating to communities that rely on transit, for example. So within the infrastructure proposal and the budget proposal, are there any ideas that really shine to you that are seem like um, exciting things that, that we could pursue? Mm -hmm. I think people on both sides of the aisle have tried to uh, get more public-private partnerships in the system, and there are good reasons for doing that. Um, you want people who are conceiving an infrastructure project to think about how many people are going to use it and what size it needs to be and what kind of market there is for that project. Um, so it makes sense to kind of bundle the incentives and get better projects as a result. The only issue is that not every project lends itself to that. There might not always be um, people who are willing to pay or should pay. Um, you know, how do you put a price tag on going and using a court building or a, a school um, or for maintenance as opposed to building new facilities? Um, at the same time, uh, another popular bipartisan idea is expediting um, environmental review or permit uh, um, acquisition for these kinds of projects. And again, um, that may make a lot of sense. You hear a lot of numbers out there that it takes seven to 10 years for a project to be approved. There are a lot of cost overruns and delays. Um, the only issue is, you know, how do you do that? At what cost? Are there environmental and other considerations that wouldn't get heard? 
um, and, and just how do you make it happen? Uh, you know, project selection is a huge issue. So are there ways that the infrastructure proposal and the budget proposals might help to incentivize collaboration from public and private partners? Right. What a lot of people forget when we talk about national infrastructure policy is that there's, with a few exceptions like the interstate highway system, there's no such thing as national infrastructure. We have a number of state and local projects that have to get put together and approved by state and local actors with private support uh, and public support. So there are a number of programs out there that already exist to help uh, speed along public-private partnerships. And a concern is that some of these programs are actually underutilized, which suggests that there is not a pipeline of projects. There are not shovel-ready projects that are just waiting to get off the ground. So when people talk about public-private partnerships, um, something like 2% of existing highway projects um, were built through this financing mechanism. Um, that's a long way from solving what some people say is a trillion-dollar gap between the amount that we're currently spending and the amount that we need to spend. Tracy, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Finally, a lot of people are talking about the impact of the budget proposals on social programs. I get into the details with senior fellow Heather Hahn. Heather, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to ask you about what in the Trump budget proposal touches upon social programs and the impact on, on the vast array of the safety net programs in the U.S. What are some things that, sh- that stuck out to you? One of the things that stuck out was an emphasis on work requirements, building on the recent administration guidance that allows states to have work requirements or community engagement requirements in Medicaid and strengthening the work requirements in SNAP. So that's one of them. Uh, Another one is proposing asset limits in Medicaid, which is limiting how how much money someone could have in their bank account or have other assets before they'd be eligible for Medicaid. And what's the rationale behind that? The main rationale historically for work requirements has been to ensure that participants are deserving of assistance. And that kind of language I'm seeing in this budget proposal. They want to make sure that uh, they are promoting a culture of work and preventing people from relying on assistance when they could be working. And does that rationale make sense? So these rationales assume that employment opportunities are available. And they assume that some people are choosing to receive assistance instead of working. And in my research, I found that when I talk to low-income parents, they want to work if they are able. They really want jobs that allow them to support their families and to leave assistance. The reality is that low-wage work is increasingly unstable and unpredictable. And there have been work requirements involved in past federal legislation for the TANF program, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. What were some of the outcomes of those work requirements? So the, the research on the effectiveness of the TANF work requirements found some modest employment increases, but they were short-lived. And they did not increase stable employment in most cases. So people may have gotten jobs, but they didn't keep those jobs. And those who did find jobs still had income below the poverty level. So the bottom line is that work requirements do not necessarily help people find jobs, and certainly not jobs that lift them out of poverty. Let's go back to your second point that you raised at the top. Another another thing that really uh, uh, was interesting to you in the budget proposal, and that's around asset limitations for Medicaid. Tell us what that means. Right, so in the budget proposal, 
It says that the budget would allow states to consider savings and other assets when determining Medicaid eligibility. I'm quoting from from the budget there. And that means that someone would not just have to prove that their income is low enough to be eligible, but that they don't have much money in their bank account or they don't have other assets like a car or the value of their house. It's actually really helpful if people can have some savings in the bank so that they can weather an unexpected shock, like a car breakdown, so they can fix their car and get to work. It doesn't mean that they can't afford health insurance or that they can afford to buy enough food to eat. So people still need that financial assistance for their food and for their medical care, and they need to have a bit of savings in the bank to weather the shocks. So the Trump budget proposal offers up a number of decreases for social programs across the board, including in the the SNAP program, including in proposed decreases in Medicaid. What would be some of the impacts of those decreases on families that receive those benefits? The rhetoric around work requirements is that we need to move people out of safety net programs and into work. And this framing misses the point that the safety net program, so food assistance, Medicaid, and childcare subsidies help people maintain employment. So most able-bodied adults who are receiving food and medical assistance are already working. And the assistance helps them maintain their health and their well-being when their jobs don't pay enough to support themselves and their families. Adult SNAP participants report better health for themselves and their children. They have fewer sick days. They visit the doctor less often. They're less likely to forego needed medical care because they can't afford it. So having this nutrition assistance helps them stay healthy and stay in their jobs. And we also see long-term benefits when we look at children. Um, Children who gained access to Medicaid and the children's health insurance programs paid more in cumulative taxes, collected less in earned income tax payments, and had higher wages by age 28. So the flip side of that, if we don't help children stay in the Medicaid program, if we don't help families pay for healthy food, we will see sicker people, and we're going to pay the cost down the road. Heather, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for the opportunity to share this research. The debate on these budget questions has just started, and there's a lot of additional work to be done in the halls of Congress. Thanks to Donald Marin, Tracy Gordon, and Heather Hahn for offering their first impressions. Shout out to Yafon Powers for producing this episode. Vicki Gann is our amazing sound editor. Our theme music is by Moby. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For the entire Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner, signing out.